0: hi everybody thank you guys for joining today this is the james Chapman podcast um this is my first ever guest on here What not so i uh, hope you guys really enjoyed today's episode um we have with me today uh, like i said my first guest my mentor my friend uh, dr antonio gardner hi everyone i'm antonio gardner
1: I'm an assistant professor of health promotion at Mississippi State University. Uh, three days from now, we'll make my four-year anniversary here at the university. So I'm excited um, that I've been around. So I guess, technically, I've graduated from the university now through freshman, through senior year. Um, so really excited about being the first guest. I just kind of intimidated, but I'm excited to be here nonetheless. Um, And we're going to get through this thing. We're excited to be doing this video. I've been listening to the podcast for a while. Um, Some really good content, relevant content, especially for um, young individuals, roughly 18 to 35. Um, So um, keep tuning in, keep logging in, um, listen to the podcast, Um, send me your suggestions for future podcasts. I think this is a great um, resource, absolutely, for everyone
0: who's listening. Thank you, Thank you. Um, honestly, uh, starting off, I kind of didn't think getting to a certain point of having an audience would be like achievable or whatnot, but I've had a little bit of success of getting a good small amount of an audience or whatnot, and I've gotten a lot of reviews like you've given yourself, uh, given from yourself and everything like that, so it's, it's been a little short journey so far.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think it's working well. I think I have a question. I know you're supposed to be talking to me and in interviewing me. I know. Mean, uh, it could be back and
0: forth.
1: Um, yeah. But, but, yeah, what inspired you to, to get involved in podcast? Uh, I know you have a lot going on as a student already here on campus, but what made you want to do to add this additional um, responsibility
0: to your plate? Um, I think I've actually articulated it maybe – in one of my earlier podcast episodes. I'm not sure at the moment. Um, but I was, I have always had this idea of wanting to like help people and wanting to talk to people and things of that nature. And in high school, I got the idea of uh, actually becoming like a motivational speaker or something like that. And then um, last year, last October, that's when I started, if I'm not mistaken, um, one of my friends, he sent me a video, a clip on Instagram from this guy. Um, his name is uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, I don't know if you've heard him or not, but um, I watched one of his, the video that he sent me, and I just got really inspired for some reason, and then I just kept watching his content and everything, and started following him, and um, one of the things that he said at one point, um, from one of the videos that I was watching, I think it was on YouTube actually, was like, um, you just have to go out here and do it, and everything like that, and Everybody doesn't have to necessarily be, like, really big on Instagram or really big on Snapchat or even TikTok when it was starting to get bigger in that time. But it could just be something as simple as, like, starting a podcast. And I really had never put any time into thinking about the different platforms that I could try to reach across to people. And so I was like, a podcast, okay, how, how easy is this going to be? And so I immediately started, like, looking for, like, microphones and stuff and things of that nature. And then he actually said in that same clip, all you have to do is, like, download this app, this, like, um, podcast app on your phone, and use your, like, smartphone, microphone and everything, and, like, they pretty much do the rest on the app. And I was like, okay, this is going to be, like, really easy. So I downloaded the app and everything, and that's, like, really how I started it, because I started it on my phone. I would, like, record myself and things of that nature, but I've gradually moved on to, like, actually having a microphone or whatnot. sitting down and doing it on my laptop and uploading audio there and everything. So, I just felt like doing a podcast then was the easiest way for me to try to reach people in certain aspects versus, like, doing a video or, like, getting enough notoriety to actually talk in person to people as well.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, classes are starting back next week. What are, What are your plans for? <laughs> continue the podcast um throughout the fall semester and what does that look like in the wake of COVID-19 can we anticipate more COVID-19 related content or maybe your personal experiences on campus and future podcasts
0: um so uh kind of like I mentioned to you before we started um I changed my idea of how I'm going to do it now I'm going to do more video content or whatnot so my original schedule for doing it since I really started this in January doing this consistently it was uh Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But, um, since I'm changing everything up, I'm probably going to juggle classes in this, among other things that I'm doing probably at least two episodes, maybe a week. or I know like at least one, like good, like long video a week or whatnot, but, um, I would definitely bring up things about COVID-19 and like probably, um, probably not so much as like my experience necessarily, but just like bringing awareness more to it and everything like that. And probably if I can find people to have their own experiences that they want to share, share their experiences as well. Cause I know um we probably know at least somebody somewhere connected to us who's had issues with it and has like had to kind of have a scare or whatnot when they came back positive and things of that nature. But it'll definitely be more COVID-19 related content um, here and there. As long as it's still going on.
1: <laughs> all right. As you know, I'm a um I'm on one of the task forces for um, the campus's return for the fall and I'm really focused on the public health campaign. Um so I think for me, on my end, I think I'm a little I guess the word to sum it all up would be anxious. I'm nervous but I'm excited about the return for classes uh, for the fall. I'm really excited to see students back in the town because this is predominantly Um, college town. Um, So it was kind of dead when everyone was just away. Um, So just kind of picking up the pace again and seeing people out and about at stores and things like that. But I do want people also to remember to practice the necessary precautions with social distancing, wearing their face masks, um, their face coverings as much as possible, definitely washing your hands and sanitizing your hands after you've washed them because washing and sanitizing are two different things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And and just doing everything possible to protect everyone involved. Um, we're still seeing high rates of infection in our state and our country in general. Um, what we want to do is just really slow the spread of this virus as much as we can, but also get people back to some level of normalcy um, in their daily lives. So is that, if that's going to work, go into class, just do it and do it safely and for those administrators who have to make those executive decisions, make sure that you are doing what's in the best interest of your employees and or students um, moving forward. So that's kind of my um, COVID-19 plug. Um, Definitely just, if you're at Mississippi State University in particular, look out for the Cowbell Will Campaign. That's the one I worked on. There'll be lots of messaging, lots of emails, commercials, yard signs, stickers, posters, you name it we have it in the works to just encourage this new normal um, and hopefully we'll get there the same way we did with our um, it took about a I don't know about six months for our smokeless um, or tobacco free campus policy. We expect to see these behaviors the same way moving forward. Um, and regardless of what university that you're at, you'll have some kind of campaign like this at the university. So do everything in your power to, to stay well, to stay healthy, stay, mentally um, healthy as possible i know we are social distancing you sometimes see, see the term physical distancing i think we started moving towards physical distancing to just emphasize the space in between individuals but social distancing i think people when they first heard that they heard this isolation piece oh i have to yeah, stay from all people i can't do social media and it wasn't that extreme it was just really just we wanted to stay at least six feet away um from others but Stay in contact, um, build your networks if you're a freshman, um, try to get involved on campus as much as you can. And these student organizations, I think a lot of things will be more virtual than you've ever seen them before. Um, but get involved with those organizations, build your network up, um, try to practice those um, behaviors, those recommended behaviors by the CBC. And um, really just make sure you're doing things, you have those outlets. I know some people are like huggers and some of us are, um, touches like try to steer clear of that as much as you can because we're, we're trying to protect us but find other ways um if you can to figure out how to t- like touch a, get your favorite blanket and rub on that for a little while. i'm not sure if that's the appropriate thing but don't share that blanket with anyone for sure but do things that will still get you to um, practice those, those behaviors that you
0: once did just in a modified way it's definitely um, something that I want to promote, especially for myself and everything. Something that I wanted to really highlight uh, was the fact that the policies that MSU has for on-campus returns and things of that nature and how um, we have like mandates for face masks and everything. And we're supposed to be having um, physical distancing in the classrooms or we're not, and in, in the library as well. And I, I guess that'll translate into like the union and then like the different um, eating spaces too. But it's just um, a lot of things that I was catching from the different information that was coming out and then um, being able to talk to some of the administration, it's uh, it's just gonna come down to the students really focusing on it themselves and everybody kind of doing their part to be able to create a safe environment for all of us to be able to like come to work or come to school and be able to get through a semester of some semblance of normalcy. Yes.
1: And and just to add to that, um, there's one I just, uh, we've talked about for a while over the summer, but if you feel sick, please, please, please stay at home. If it's just, you know, a minor cough or a sniffle or anything like that, just just stay at home. Um, We're more than understanding. Um, as professors on our end of that type of situation. I've always been that way anyway. If you feel sick in general, don't don't come to class. This was (laughs) pre-COVID-19. Yeah. I think more people, more professors starting to take it a little bit more seriously. Um, So definitely um, do your part on that end. Um, I know you'll feel the pressure like, oh, if I don't go to class, I'll miss this content or I might miss this assignment. There will be alternatives for the most part. Um, For most professors, some are as flexible, but most will be um, in the fall semester and spring semester moving forward. Um, Just do everything we can. I know all of you want to see college football, for example, which is pending, but that is pending us on our part now as as well, as a society, not just as a university, but as a society as a whole, um, to really curb that um, epidemic curve or that, yes, epidemic curve. (laughs) Trying to get into epidemiology right now. um absolutely um do your part stay home um and we'll we'll get through this thing for sure
0: i was uh, definitely pleased um i was looking at a syllabus the other day and um i saw that they had um had a part on there talking about if you felt sick in any way at all that um the classes would be live streamed at least for that professor would not so there there are alternatives and there are some yeah. professors trying to be flexible as much as they can to get um different forms of their content out there to the students and everything in a safe manner.
1: Yes, yes, to my knowledge, most of the the classes will be live streamed. I think there are only a handful of classrooms that don't have that capability, Um, but they're literally right now today, (laughs) moving around, installing those cameras into all the classrooms. The cameras just came, I think yesterday, Um, but they'll all be in place by Monday for sure in all the classrooms, all the auditoriums um auditorium the m club i think some people will be in the hub for example so we'll have that equipment everywhere and and hopefully if you're at another university they'll have that capability as well that you're not missing out and if you are at another university and you are um, in a situation where you don't have a live the um live stream capabilities don't don't be afraid to reach out to your professor in general um we're here to help you for sure um i think There's this inferiority conflict sometimes when we have that relationship with students, but I always tell my students, undergrad, grad student, I'm teaching mainly grad students right now, well, all grad students this semester, actually, but I always have, I want to build that relationship with my students and say, hey, if there's anything you need, always keep me in the loop, always keep me in the know. Um, If you're gonna miss class, just roll over, send them one line of, hey, Dr. Gardner, I'm sick. Like, that's, that's enough for me. Um, and we'll figure out the rest later on. Because I'd rather be proactive and send that brief one liner up um, front versus, you know, several weeks later. It's like, oh, well, you remember back in August and it's October, <laughs> I, I class that day, I was wondering if I could, you know, make up that assignment. And my policy is most of our syllabi, um, the policies they are very um, strict, they're not, they're very rigid. I'll put it that way. And so there's not a lot of flexibility after the fact, but there is a lot of flexibility before. Um, Pan. So, if you feel yourself, you know, with the sniffles that morning of, say, "Hey, I'm not gonna be able to make it to class. I'll see you when I can. Hopefully, we can make up some alternative plan for um, making up whatever I missed in class today." Uh, but I always build those relationships. Just in general, build those relationships with your, your professor. You never know. Um, what opportunities will come up and be available? I've been working behind the scenes a little this summer um, with some of my former and current students, um, getting them involved in our professional society um, behind the scenes, um, and it's just based on what I've seen of them, their capabilities. One, some people are brilliant, and there'll there'll be opportunities just falling at their doorsteps, and those there, those other individuals who Maybe need a little um, boost in their careers. And it was like, hey, did you know that you could do this? Your GPA is not amazing, but if you do this experience, um, this may give you a leg up on the person who does have that perfect 4.0. Um, so, still find a way to get those individuals in the door, paying for memberships behind the scene and getting them involved in some of the um, things that I'm doing at the national level, not even local level, the national level. Um, letters of recommendation, for example, those would be helpful. I think I transitioned into advising by accident, but letters of recommendation. I know, sorry. That's another thing um, that's, that's very crucial coming in your freshman year. Even if you are a senior now, you just really have not built relationships. At some point, you're going to need to re- rely on um, some of your core professors, maybe your yeah. STEM, for example. And if you're going to med school or pharmacy school or dental school, you'll need to rely on those STEM courses, those STEM professors, maybe your chemistry or physics professor, to write a recommendation letter for that professional school. So it's important not only to show up, but to build that relationship as much as you can. Maybe it's helping out in the lab here and there or just stopping by for office hours. that makes a huge difference, I think, when it comes to the letter writing process. And you can kind of gauge that too as a professor, or even pro- from the student pers- perspective. If you ask someone for a recommendation letter and they say, hey, send me a CV, chances are they don't know enough about you <laughs> to write a <laughs> I'm the type of professor, i I much rather have be able to write a whole book on you. So yeah. the more we engage in in class, outside of class, I think the better off you'll be. I don't want to be in a position where I have to ask for a CV. Maybe I ask for a CV as a reminder, like oh, of the other random things you've done. I can't keep up with so much. Um, but usually when I ask for a CV, it's usually because I don't know that much about you. So definitely build those relationships with professors if you haven't started those um, this summer. Well, this fall, this semester for sure. Um, get involved in those organizations. Um, maybe you want to be Greek, or maybe you want to do um, intramural sports. Um, Glee Club or University Choir if they have that available I'm not sure what social distancing will look like uh, for some of the organizations like band I'm not sure what that'll look like in the ball they usually have 400 people um, but um, definitely get involved any way you can uh, make the experience as much about you as possible um, I often have students who ask me well what organization should I have also well, what are you interested in that's what you should be joining. it's not oh, you have to join the pre-med club because you are pre-med. You don't necessarily have to. It's recommended, um, but it's not a requirement. But you want to do things that just make you um, the individual you are, because this is a time for you to blossom to become your own human being. And it's your time to really, prior to college, you've been told what to do, essentially, um, every step along the way. Nobody tells you to get up in the morning anymore. Nobody's there to cook breakfast for you. Or anything like that. I mean, technically, they are if you live on campus, but... It's different. Um, nobody makes you go to class. So th- those things you have to um, adjust on your own and that transitions you into adulthood um, overall, but experiment um, as much as you can in college with, with everything and just kind of figure out what you like and what you don't like. Um, so that moving forward it'll be easier when you get out into the world say, hey, I like this, I don't like this. Even down to dating and relationships, you'll figure out things in college, um, about what your likes and dislikes are, qualities, um, characteristics of, of potential partners. So just take it all in, enjoy as much as you can, again, social distance, wear your face mask, <laughs> stay home if you're sick, uh, wash your hands, sanitize your hands, things like that. Um, try not to fill your class schedule up. Um, I know some people are pressured to finish in four, um, but Long story short, I, I, was, I was an advisor at one point, a health professions advisor when I was, after I finished my master's degree, before I started my PhD. So my full-time job was to get people into med school, dental school, pharmacy school, all those health profession schools. And one thing that I always get from students who would come in my office is um, questions about, um, finishing in four years. I said, well, what happens after you finish this degree? It's like, oh, I go on to, to the next thing, professional school. It's like, okay, then what happens after that? Uh, you get a job. Long story short, you get a job. That like, there's some things that happen between getting the job and dying, like you probably get <laughs> like that. It's other milestones, but the long story short, those two things are inevitable. You will work and you will die.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: but they, you know, you know take advantage of these years if you happen to be here six or seven years so be it I just, you know you'll still get to where you need to be um okay maybe i shouldn't say it like that because <laughs> 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 um, i think some of you are like oh going to get to the cemetery or to work which way um but you'll you'll ultimately get to where you're supposed to be everybody's timing is going to be to be different so don't pressure yourself don't beat yourself up Um, But take your time, do it as right as possible, as well as possible, Um, and don't sacrifice your GPA overworking yourself or overwhelming yourself either. Um, So those are
0: some of my tidbits um, on, I guess, academics. (laughs) I definitely can uh, articulate it better than I could have. Uh, (laughs) Um... I just wanted to point out uh, for COVID nineteen purposes, especially if you go to MSU, um, definitely make sure to do like self checks and things of that nature. And um, they um, started promoting the Everbridge app and um, the yeah. different features that they have on there as well. So I guess that goes in with the Cowbell, um, with the Cowbell Connect, and then different yes. things with that program, things of that nature. So it's it's definitely definitely different ways that you can do your part to stay healthy as well. And I think the professors will be a lot more flexible this semester, especially when it comes down to students being in the classroom and having their attendance be as, um, not necessarily, I guess, counted, but like just their attendance period, um, being valued for them and everything of that nature. So it's, it's definitely something it's a major plus for me to know that there's cameras on campus and everybody's going to have, well, majority of the classes are going to have chances to have live stream capabilities and things of that nature. Cause that was, one of my main questions, especially um, talking to different people about um, how we should be moving forward, not just from like this time right now with COVID-19, but even future purposes with future years down the road, how it's just going to be easier for students to be able to catch that same content from that same professor or whatnot and still feel comfortable enough with having other classes in face-to-face formats or things of that nature. So it's just, just, it just makes me feel good that MSU wants to invest in us that much able to get to that point and um,
1: for us to do our classes this semester. Absolutely, and don't get overwhelmed either um, when you get into the classroom because some some, um, seats aren't gonna be a perfect six feet apart, uh, for example, so if you just feel uncomfortable being slightly less than six feet, it might be five and a half or something like that. Um, Just move to another seat. Uh, Don't make a big deal about it, just. Um, find a, a space that is more comfortable for you. And if you want to be in that bubble, just let others know as delicately as possible. Hey, don't sit okay. and be this close to me. If there's an ample space to, to do that in that classroom. Because um, so again, the university and the other universities are doing their part. They're trying to get it down to an exact science, but they also want to maximize the amount of people that can be in the room too. too, so. Um, just keep that in mind. And again, thanks for the plug about Everbridge app um, here at MSU. Um, that's going to be your self-check um, app for sure. Just do your daily screenings there. And I think there's a capability as well to notify you if you've been in contact with someone yeah, yeah. who has COVID-19. So to add that contact tracing component as well. So that that's a cool feature. But I guess the limitation is it's optional, but I encourage everyone, if you can, to Strongly recommend that everyone actually download the app um, so that you'll at least be aware.
0: Yeah, it, it starts with safe practices for yourself and everything. Um, mm-hmm. So, I guess transitioning more into like academia and everything, um, <laughs> especially since you took it to the advising path for a little bit. Um, could you explain the importance of coming in as a freshman and um, not like being overwhelmed? necessarily about having a major or like a set major and like letting people know that it's like okay to be like undecided and to like not have everything figured out once they get into campus whether that's the university level or the community college level. Right and and so that was I think I didn't touch on that enough on my point about
1: experimenting but that's that's part of experiment. so there will be a lot of people there probably I don't know what the percentage is but there are there's this group of people who come to campus who just have no idea what they want to do. They're just here, taking classes, trying to figure it out. Um, dabble in as much as you can. Of course, the English courses will be required. Some of the history courses, the math courses, for example, will be required. Um, I had a cousin, for example, who's a football player, um, who he started off, he thought he was going to be an engineer, and he took a few math courses. like, wait, this is too <laughs> intense for me. Let me switch my major. I actually enjoy the public speaking aspect. He switched his major to, to communications, um, thinking he was going in going to be a completely engineering major. Um, don't let that, I guess, major itself, a major, limit you. Um, that that's the flexibility that you you have a lot of flexibility within that major, um, the undecided or undeclared major. Um, to experiment a little bit of everything. If you find yourself really paying attention to the music courses and that's what drives you or that's what keeps you waking up for that class on time and staying after class, maybe you should go into music. Um if you find yourself more you love to write and you love to read and you're good at proofreading papers, maybe English is the route for you or communication or something or public speaking or something along those lines, public relations. Um, so there are options. Take advantage of the the university's course offerings. Look for those classes that you think are unique. Of course, there'll be prerequisites that are associated with some courses, um, but take those entry-level courses and kind of figure out if this is really a path that you want to take. And if there's nothing that really piques your interest in all the courses that you thought would be interested, maybe there's another university, or maybe you're, you're I hate to say it, but not everybody's meant to be in a four-year institution. Yeah. There are technical yeah. colleges that are yeah. available. Um, we have community colleges with other trades that are available. So don't, again, don't be, feel like you have to be pressured into finishing a four-year degree if that's not what your passion is. There are plenty of people who wait, make way more money than I do with a two-year <laughs> 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 Um, And I'm out here, I have a bachelor's, master's, PhD, and I'm like, well, I wish I was as financially stable as <laughs> the person who went to community college for two years. I put, what, nine years of life into school? Eight years, technically, of life into this doctoral degree. <laughs> so, um, yeah, take advantage of those, those opportunities. Um, if you can, get out in shadow. Um, that's one thing I always encourage. Um, when I was a health professional advisor, and that's actually something the health profession schools will look for is um, your commitment to the profession by shadowing a physician or a pharmacist or a veterinarian. Um, Get out into the field and really follow someone around for a good, at least two weeks just to see what they do on a daily basis. And don't, if if it doesn't work with your class schedule, try not to consistently go on Mondays or consistently go on Fridays, but um, definitely try to Find random times of the day. Because after a while, you start to see the same things if you go only on Mondays or only on Fridays. Um, But mix up your schedule, maybe skip lunch one day and and go off and see what they're doing on a Tuesday at 12.30. Um, You may be um, quite surprised at what gets done or doesn't get done um, in the profession. For me in high school, we had a, what was it called? Youth Leadership Program. And one of our first tasks, I think it was the first task, was we, we were split up into different groups um, to follow someone, shadow someone on the job. And I know I wanted to go into medicine at the time. That's a whole nother story. We may get to that today. <laughs> um, but I know I wanted to go into medicine at the time. I wanted to help people. And I was like, well, I already know what, you know, a physician does. I've done all this shadowing at the hospital. I've been in the ER. I've been in radiology. I've been in private practice. I worked at these um, nonprofit clinics, um, just getting that shadowed experience. Let me do something different. So I followed the, the guy around who was, um, he was an accountant um, and I fell asleep on him. So that's <laughs> <I did. laughs> that wasn't for me because when the first 30 minutes, I was sitting there nodding. And I, I got a good eight hours of sleep the night before. So I wasn't tired, but I just kept nodding off while he was talking, I said, there is no way. <laughs> This is the profession. I love numbers, but what he's doing with numbers is just not, not for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, get out, get out there, experiment, and enjoy. Experiment with the classes. Shadow um, individuals. Um, get with your campus advisors as well. Um, sometimes they are under. I know they are. Speaking as a former advisor, I know advisors are underutilized. Um, but take advantage of, of that time. Don't just be in there for the class schedule, and that's it. Sit there and talk to them about talk to them about your um, career plans and what you think you might want to do. That's what they're there for also. Not that five- or ten-minute transaction that you right. want, just release classes and I forgot the rest. But really sit down and just map out things. Even if you're one of those people who is OCD about, Um, Getting classes, you know, finishing in four, if that's really like what you want to do, sitting down and mapping that out with them as well so that that transaction the next time you're ready to be released for classes will be easier, but they'll also be aware of what your life and career goals are as well, and they can help you as best they can to get to where you need to be or want to be.
0: Um, Me personally... I feel like, um, as you said, advisors are underutilized, and, um, especially even in the high school sense. Um, something that I really want to focus on after after I graduate probably, I'll focus on it more, but just helping high schoolers understand their options. Like you were saying, um, everybody's not meant to go to a four-year university, and um, everybody's not meant to go to colleges, um, period. Um, and there are other options with technical schools things of that nature and then even going into the military and doing the different type of technical fields that they have as well but just having kids understand the importance of like doing job shadowings and um, trying to find um, internship opportunities and things of that nature so you can actually see what it is like to be on the job and to do those different types of things um, depending on what career that you're thinking about going into but also not being closed off and being like open-minded like you had been knowing you already had the idea of medicine in your head, but you went and job shadowed um, an accountant. So just knowing that there's, just because you're focused on one thing, it's good to see the different um, careers and spaces out there that you could possibly be interested in as well, even at, um, even in high school, but also while in college, to get a better sense of what it is that you want to do, even if you have your major or if you're undecided as well. Right.
1: And two, don't don't be afraid, even when you're within your profession, to explore similar professions. Um, because we're starting to see a lot of collaboration among professions. So, for example, I'm in health education, health promotion. A lot of people didn't know what that was prior to COVID-19. It was like, oh, this public health thing, like, what is this? <laughs> this is a field we get to explain to people how to prevent COVID-19 or... Uh, my focus uh, uh, mainly is HIV prevention, but COVID 19, HIV, if you're looking, paying attention to the pathology, um, at least the way we learned about HIV is very similar. Um, the process that, that we're going to, to figure out what the symptoms are and what could be causing the disease and who is susceptible, more susceptible to the disease is very very similar to how the HIV AIDS epidemic started. Um, mainly the in the early 80s is when we did most of our investigative research um but talk to other professionals in the field um you'd be surprised at what you've learned because i'm even communicating with physicians that they, they have the jargon the language mm-hmm. to, um, to speak it uh, professionally but when it comes down to actually talking to community members that's where the health education yeah. comes in we, we acknowledge health literacy for example that not everyone has a, a an md or a do or phd Some people may have only completed sixth grade and it's like, how do you communicate that same information that you communicate to someone who only graduated sixth grade to someone also who does have that phd and maybe you're just communicating the same thing but in two different languages almost um so that's a skill set that i encourage um my students to have as well which is why i try to use plain language even when i'm um, having discussions with individuals, I wanted for a third grader to read a transcript of what I just said during this interview, or most of it anyway, and be able to comprehend exactly what was going on. And some people miss that. It's like, oh, it's great that you have vocabulary, but is it always appropriate oh, appropriate to, to articulate everything that you know, um, vocabulary-wise? Um, but yeah it it's it's been exciting. I guess I'll transition a little into <laughs> how I got into health education and health much I know we're all over the place today
0: oh, wow. that would be that would be nice. I mean we're getting there we were gonna get there
1: oh okay.
0: yeah,
1: but um, i was i guess I'll start from the beginning in the beginning uh God created um uh, me I'm just kidding uh, <laughs> but um. I was born and raised in a small town in Alabama, Autogaville, Alabama, A U T A U G A V I L L E. Alphabetically, it's the first city and the first county and the first state. Um, a lot of you may have been seeing lately um, a new popular water, Black-owned water bottle, wing Company, 1186. Um, that's actually based in my hometown. Okay. Uh, we
0: have,
1: it's a very small town. <laughs> they just started delivering water here in Mississippi as of last week. Uh, um, uh, I don't think it's quite Starkville, but somewhere here in North north Mississippi. Uh, But mainly it's been in Alabama and Texas that they've been disseminating the water, but um, now they're starting to pick up some nationwide attention. So they'll be um, expanding their distribution lists and locations uh, for sure. But it's a small town um, in central Alabama near Montgomery. Um, Actually, if you did the Selma to Montgomery march, some of you may have come um, to Selma for that or come for commemoration to Selma. We're about 20 minutes away. And so that march actually took place on, there's only two ways to get to to, um, Montgomery from Selma. So you're gonna go north um, through my hometown and and go highway 14 or you're going south, which is the way they went of the Alabama river um, on US highway 80. but um there in that town where Otagoville, particularly is probably the only predominantly black town in that county um that i live in so growing up starting kindergarten i think it was um and this is the importance of people um starting to speak things into existence i, I guess um but my eco she was a pa she wasn't even the coach she was just kind of there to now you have the teaching aids on campus yeah. It's just kind of there to assist and make sure that we weren't getting in trouble. But she always like starting in kindergarten, like day one, she called me Doctor Garden and Doctor Garden. And I was like, Ooh, I like the ring of that. I don't know what that is, but I like the ring of it. Because at that time I think all I wanted to do uh, was be a movie star. Um that's what you do when you're four or five yeah. years old. I just want to be in movies and acting. Um, like, the big shows then were, like, um, big films, I remember, or black films anyway, were, like, Sister Act and The Bodyguard with Whitney Houston and things like that. I was like, oh, I can do what they do. Um, <laughs> um, we had Todd's more, John Ernie, Smollett, the Olsen twins. They were all about the same age as myself, as me also. So I was like, oh, yeah, I could do acting. But as soon as I heard Doctor, I was like, wait, <laughs> what, what is that? What does what that entail? And I started doing some more investigation, not necessarily in kindergarten, but probably fourth, fifth grade, I started investigating more what physicians did Um, and liked um, what I heard about, especially the schooling aspect, I was really a nerd. So I was like, oh, I get to stay in school for a long time. (laughs) So that's what appealed to me, um, just being able to read and write and just learn a lot of information. Um, But as I progressed um, through high school, I did some summer programs um, at the University of Alabama. They have some sp- programs specific to, well, for students who are interested in rural health. Um, and then um, I also did some shadowing um, in high school through my vocational school. So I actually took vocational technology courses in high school because I was that invested in, 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 into going into medical school. Some people frown upon vocations like, oh, well, that won't prepare you for college, but it actually prepared me for college in, in more hmm. ways than I can ever imagine. Um, especially with the health literacy component and knowing how to do high weight, blood pressure, the empathy piece that's always, well not always, it's sometimes missing um, from physicians um, when they get into practice. Um, started at Album a University. I majored in biology, not because I wanted to necessarily, but I felt like I had to. And so going back to our discussion earlier about choosing a major, um, don't do it, or maybe do what I did. I'm not sure which advice to give here. Um, I'll let you decide. But I majored in biology because I felt like when I took the ACT, uh, which is the interest exam to get into school, um, my lowest score was actually in science. It was tied with science and reading. I can't remember what the scores were now, but they were tied for the lowest. And I said, so well, you can't really major in reading, so I think I'll major in science since I'm already so good at English and I'm already so good at, at the math, like why waste my energy on those those areas like, let me focus on my weakness, and so I majored in biology I don't think I would recommend that again except <laughs> um, but I excelled in the, in the major like I did fairly well, I think I graduated with a three point seven eight overall something like that, and but I hated it like. Uh-huh. It was just memorization. There was nothing I could do with my hands for the most part. You would go to labs and kind of sit there and memorize everything you saw. And so there was really no incentive, nothing that really just pulled me to just roll out of bed and, and get involved. Like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to be a biologist and, you know, and that. I was like, okay, so when is med school coming? When is med school coming? that's the fun part? Um, so near my, I think it was the summers of my sophomore and junior year, actually, did a summer program at the, at the University of South Alabama. It was called the DREAM program. I think it still exists. Um, but that was for pre-med students who were interested in going to medical school. And so the requirement was basically that you complete the two summers of the program. As long as you pass and got a MCAT score, I can't remember what the score. I think it was a 20, but there's a new scale for MCAT now. So that's out the window. Um, but as long as you had that score and which it, it was lower than what the admissions requirement was, oh wow. um, you, were ex- you were accepted into their medical school. And so the first summer I did, okay, it was a bit of a transition because um, I was in a cohort. I think there were three of us from Alabama A&M, which is where I did undergrad. undergrad. Um, I think about five from Tuskegee University. I think it was one from Notre Dame and, a few other schools that i can 't recall, but I felt like all the other students in comparison to the L&M students it was just a matter of curriculum honestly, they had seen some of the content in their courses that we weren 't going to see until the next year, academic year, and so they they were slightly more prepared than we were. so the first year was just proving myself um, that I could do the work and so the second year, I went into the program I did finally pulled it out our stipends were actually based on our grades and the courses so I didn't get a lot of money that first, that first, that first summer. Um, the second summer, I was like, I'm going to blow it out of the water on the first exam. On the first exam, sure enough, I had a perfect 100 on the exam. I don't know how I did that. Uh, but then after that, I didn't care. So I was <laughs> like, I've already proven myself that I'm capable. After that, it's just a matter of, of, of formality for the most part. But I didn't um, allocate as much time to studying for the MCAT as I thought I should have. And so I took the MCAT after that summer and I did okay. It wasn't where I wanted to be and it definitely wasn't the score that South Alabama needed for um, admission to medical school. So um, I was actually one of those overachievers to some extent too. So I was actually scheduled to finish college in December of the academic year. So I would've been done and I did finish. In December, so I finished in three and a half years and said, oh, well, there's no way I'm going back home to a college <laughs> Because if I do that, then I won't – there's a potential that I'll stay there, and I won't get this MCAT score, and I won't move forward with my career goals. So I called Dr. John Wheat at Alabama, who was over the rural program that I had done in high school, and I asked him what my options were. He said, well, just come here. Um, I'll keep you busy in my office. I'll find a job for you, um, and I just want you to focus on studying, and I'll have you take some courses, maybe retake some courses. So I spent a semester just – um, focusing just on the MCAT and taking classes related to MCAT, um, uh, working in his office, basically stapling and just all the clerical things um that need to be done in his office. Um stuck around that summer because I wanted to still stay in the area, completed um, what was our counselor first for the summer program. Um to so help those high school students that, in the program that I had already done to achieve their goals, or at least be exposed to the profession in general, what, what all healthcare entails. Um, did that for some in then that fall, I was actually in the master's degree program uh, within, that, when the, within that department. Took the, it was an accelerated master's degree by the way. So I took 15 hours in the fall and 15 hours in the spring. So that whole master's degree was completed in two semesters. Oh wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And so that master's degree, um, that second semester when I was almost done, I was t- taking a health policy and planning course, and there was this professor that I had. She, we had to go to the medical school, um, in Tuscaloosa because they have one there. Um, people don't realize that, but they have one there. Sorry, <laughs> anyway. Um, but we were there in the in that medical school, medical school for that class, and the professor, um, her name was Leah Yerby. Um, She'd come to class, was always smiling, always full of energy, just bursting full of joy. And I'm just like, who is this lady? What does she do? Because I feel like she does something important. Like she's here at the medical school with all these physicians. Mm -hmm. But I know she's PhD. She's not MD or DL. So what does she do? And how can I do what she does? Because I've been shadowing for years. And I've never seen a physician smile this way and be this this enthusiastic about Um, what he or she does and so I did some research on the field and realized like hey this kind of align this field aligns with what I would have wanted to do as a physician Um, so I had narrowed down as a physician what I wanted to do to either be general family practice which is probably 80 percent by the time I finish this master's degree program and Anesthesiologist was about the other 20%. Um, so I heavily leaned towards the, the general family practice. And one of the things I had already come up with my slogan for general family practice which is basically, um, come to me for something different or be dead the next time I see you. <laughs> <laughs> which basically means that I should have thoroughly educated you yeah. during your, on what you came there for. So that mm-hmm. you're not... Continually coming back for the same thing over and over again. Um, So definitely come back with something different. But I'm going to teach you how to cope with what you came in for today. But please don't come back for this (laughs) issue. Uh, But I did see that a lot in my chat. uh, I would chat on certain days, I would see almost the same people. Oh wow! Like certain times, like weren't we just here like two weeks ago for the same thing? And sure enough, they they were. So I didn't want to be one of those positions. But that's how I stumbled upon health education, health promotion because we have more time in our field to really spend with those individuals, either in that clinical setting within a hospital, which we're starting to see more health educators in those settings now, or um, on the academic side, educating people about how to educate people (laughs) um, about their their illnesses or disease or whatever the case may be, um, and coping with those. Um, But yeah, during that master's degree, I took the MCAT again, but then by the time I had been exposed to the... To the PhD or the health education, health and health promotion component, I was like, yeah, this is what I think I want to do, but I need some time to reflect, which is how I ended up being an advisor. So I took two years off um, after I finished that master's degree. So I really wanted to think on, like, do I really want to go to med school or do I really want to do this PhD in health education, health promotion? And so I um, took two years off, was a health professions advisor at Auburn University at Montgomery, um, their small site, um, about five, 6,000 students there and helped a lot of individuals get into medical school, pharmacy school, vet school. Um, I think I had a few go to nursing school as well. And they're all fairly successful. And I was kind of nervous doing the job, but at some point during that um, process, again, it was only two years, but apparently a huge impact in those two years. <laughs> um, I, the conclusion, I was like, wait, I'm spending so much time working on everybody yeah. else's goals, right their goals. What about me? What about what I set out to do? What have I achieved? What, what do I still need to work on? And so um, when I applied for my doctoral program, it was supposed to be a trial run. I was really just applying. University of Alabama was my dream school for this particular um, topic. That's another thing. You have to choose your university based on what you think you'll get the most for your major also, especially in those um, graduate programs, not necessarily undergraduate, but definitely graduate programs and University of Alabama is one of those reputable programs. I was like, I'll just apply to my dream school, get this feedback, they'll tell me what's wrong with my application, and then next year I'll reapply. So I submitted the application, um, and then they accepted me, and I didn't expect that at all. I was like, well, what do I do with this information? And I said, "Uh, I don't know. And then a few weeks later, I can't remember if I called Dr. Birch at Alabama or if he called me, Um, But I found out I had a graduate research assistant position available as well and said, well, I guess I have to quit my job now (laughs) and go to school. But it was just really, I really wasn't planning for that. I didn't know the application was that good. So um, it worked out, got involved in my uh, profession as soon as I got there. So initially I was a graduate research assistant for the department um and then i transitioned into working for another department on campus um kind of equivalent to our extension services here we have in mississippi um was the division of community affairs and there i worked on mainly um a faith-based health program so we're working with predominantly african-american churches to increase health literacy so each month we have a different health topic so one month might be focused on diabetes another might be focused on lupus another Other was how to communicate with your physician, which was one of my first, one of my favorite um, workshops to give. And I focused on, um, as well, not only that program, but we had a summer swimming program for underserved youth in the the area as well. So, as long as you're between four and 14 years old, this program's offered to you if you were an attendee of the YMCA. Uh, We gave you free swimming lessons. Um, We focused on, we had a nutrition curriculum, physical activity curriculum. And um, we even had an academic enrichment component, where we had school teachers from the school district. Of course, they need um, funding in the summertime as yeah. well. And so we hired them to um, do the remediations for the summer to make sure that they were ready for the next grade uh, with that summer program. So my passion has always been with the rural African-American um, populations in all of my research, um, even down to, I didn't talk about the, when I was in the master's degree, I worked on a study, um, it was called rural oh, what was the title for real? Um, uh, but we're working on HIV disclosure decisions of rural African American men. So basically who are they telling about their HIV status? Um, when they found out they had HIV and why were they telling these individuals about that? And even in that study I was like, Oh, well, all these people look like me like but you don't know. Um, just by running an eye test usually if somebody's HIV positive. It's like what can I do? Um, to help more people um, who look like me so a lot of my research i've been intentional about working with rural and or african-american populations that have those rural roots i know what it's like to be rural you'll hear that southern brawl a lot (laughs) in my voice now it wasn't there initially it's just grown on me i don't know how that happened Um, and then um, same thing with african-american populations because we are in the research but are we really getting the services that we need Uh And, and a lot of cases from people who look like us, because we are—we do have that issue if you look back at the history of Tuskegee, for example, Tuskegee syphilis experiment, um, watching Ms. Everett's board, if you haven't done that in your lifetime yet. Um, but um, we, we do have this distrust with the medical community, and you want to have someone who looks like you. And I think Ms. Everett's board is actually a case opposite of what the point I'm trying to prove, but she was someone who looked like us, but she was helping us to get into that study, which lasted a lot longer than it should have but in my case i'm actually really trying to help people <laughs> um, to get into study so that i can learn how to best help my, my people as much as i can and so my current research is barbershop based so i'm in the early stages still c- kind of conducting a needs assessment for anything you do almost everything you do you always want to sit back and ask yourself what are the needs of the people i'm trying to help yeah, I mean, um, I don't know. And then ask the people. So that, that's the that's what I'm doing with my barbershop-based research. Like, I have the grand idea for a barbershop-based uh-huh. HIV prevention program, but is that what the people want. And so I've been in barbershops asking individuals about their, through paper and pencil survey. Of course, we're well, on hiatus right now with COVID-19. <laughs> Um, but the first phase of the study, we went to barbershops to ask people about their HIV knowledge, answer um, so their HIV knowledge questions, um, their current engagement, risky sexual behaviors such as drinking, having multiple sexual partners, not using condoms, things like that, and um, overall what their perceptions or their attitudes towards condoms and those types of behaviors, and then overall their perceptions of what they think about a barbershop based HIV for. Per- prevention program. So would they be receptive to a health educator coming in and speaking about these topics while they get a haircut? Would they prefer their barber to speak to them about it while they get a the haircut? Would they like condoms in the barbershop for sale or for free? Um, those types of things. And so we're analyzing all of that data right now. In addition, we've started the second phase. Again, that's, that's the part that's on hiatus right now is Doing focus groups, which are real, which have really turned into interviews, one-on-one interviews, asking those additional questions. Because again, with a paper and pencil survey, you can find out the what, yeah. but you can't necessarily find out the why. And yeah. so if that's what they like to give more context to what, the whys of the whats. Um, but that that's where I am with my research. I think I, there's actually a feature in MAPHIS Discoverers um, this this month. So if you have that magazine. Um, check it out for sure. And, and you can read more about um, what that research looks like at this point.
0: And um, Something for me, especially, uh, as you mentioned, the black community, African-American community, um, probably more prominent in the rural areas. And we always mm-hmm. have had that like kind of stigma of distrust between medical professions, even the people who look like us ourselves. But I know mm-hmm. something that I've tried to really make pertinent in my life is um, having that trust and building that trust with the different positions that I have over my time and um, talking with my parents more about it as well. And even connecting with my grandparents a little bit about just the different things that they've gone through and the different positions that they go to as well. And trying to build that, um, that basic health kind of self-care foundation for myself to know what it is that I need to know, especially at this age and time in my life, and be able to know who to talk to and what to look for as I progress into more adulthood and get to that airspace of like wanting to start a family and things of that nature. And I just, I guess like I could actually like, what are, what are like the main challenges with trying to get more African Americans more comfortable with just having that conversation with more medical professionals and just even just like basic pediatricians and things of that nature. Uh, I, that one's caught me
1: off guard. Um, I was actually reading the article, I guess it's been about a year ago now, about that topic. I'll have to get you some more info about that because i really just kind of gotten away from that research altogether about the distrust component. But I think um, sincerity, uh, being um, truly genuine um, in the process is it, very helpful um, for um, African Americans when, when we're in that setting where we're looking at you in the white coat. Um, being authentic as possible, um, that that's helpful as well. The empathy component is sometimes lacking. Um, I've experienced that personally um, here in Mississippi. I've only been here four years, but um, I've experienced that in, in my checkups, um, where it's like you just assume that the patient knows um, everything, and that's not always essential. Or you assume that the patient doesn't know anything, and then you talk down to that individual. Um, so having that clear um, dialogue, the, the health communications piece, I think, is, is a major component of the bedside manner, um, definitely makes a difference in the, in the um, health outcomes that you'll see among our population. So making sure that we are, again, being as authentic as possible and what we're doing, really communicating what our intentions are clearly uh, and concisely as possible, being available for that additional question that, that the patient may have. Um, that that's important as well, making sure that they can teach back to you in the setting, um, what they, you just communicated to them. That's another thing I've um, emphasized in my um, classes as well is the teach back method. Um, so after I've told you, you know, what this medication is for, can you tell me what it's for, or how many times you're supposed to take it and things like that, Making sure that all their questions are answered. And just, again, just not assuming Um, Try to avoid all those assumptions that you may have, whether they're guided in racism or sexism or whatever the gays may be. Um, Just look at each patient as as a blank slate and, okay, let's do this needs assessment. What do I need to know about this individual? What do they need to know um, from me? And how do we make sure that they're getting the best possible outcomes out of this interaction? So they'll continue to come back you know that that's the important piece is you want them to come back when they and then you, you want them to trust you enough to come back um, for additional services
0: um, something that kind of sparked my idea i was oh, spark a question in my head on um, why you're talking with your earlier statement about um how you got into the medical field and the position that you're in um which basically do you feel that for kind of younger people in that like high school age range, like 14 to 18, 14 to 19, do you feel like they're being given the opportunity to learn the proper things that they need to know, going into adulthood and getting into that more sexual type of hyper interactive stage of their lives? We we have work to do, (laughs) a a lot of work to do
1: um, for sure. Um, but we'll, we'll get there it, again. This starts at the policy level. So, what are what are our policies currently saying, um, and what how can we modify those to be more beneficial to those individuals so that we're not seeing um, new cases of or increased cases of STIs, for example, HIV, chlamydia, gonorrhea, um, herpes simplex, like, so on and so forth. And then, additionally, um, for those individuals who do thirst for more than what's covered in the curriculum, how do we create those opportunities um, for those individuals to get out there and learn about these on, on the, I wouldn't say on the job, because they won't be hired, but through shadowing experiences, through volunteering experiences, what can that look like? What should that look like? How much should they know? And I think for us, it's really not necessarily that the students that I'm more concerned about is really the parents and the consent process. Yeah um that, that's a major concern because a lot of times the values are kind of passed along to the children it's like oh I don't want my children to learn about this because I'm not prepared um, to talk about this with my children and, that, and that's probably not how that should should work if you're not prepared then maybe you do you should want that professional um, to, to ch- talk to your child about um, that particular topic because maybe they are more comfortable and they'll communicated more um, medically and scientifically accurately than than you would have and then we'll go out into the world with these um preconceived notions about how things work or don't work um case in point my mom for example she well she would consistently tell she didn't tell it anymore but uh when i was younger probably five or six years old she would always start telling the story about how her her mother had her believing that the only way to get pregnant was if a boy touched your belly button. And so she would run around um, thinking that this is how you got pregnant. If somebody touches touches my belly button, this is a baby's coming, and I'm going to be in trouble with my mom because I'm having a baby. Um, I think she figured out how that worked. But <laughs> who knows how long she ran around. about until 16 or 17 thinking that, that was the case. Um, so make sure that we're providing, even with sexual education, for example, just um, age-appropriate information um, from pre-K all the way up until adult- adulthood. Because we're already doing it, people don't realize it. But when we have those discussions with our children, for example, in kindergarten, it's like, hey, don't pull down your pants and run the class. Yeah. That's typically sex education, you don't Basically, realize it. At that, that age, play, wow. yeah, It's inappropriate. To, to pull your pants down in front of the class. That, that's still sex education. Um, but some people don't realize that they're, they're doing that, for example, in the K through 12 or pre-K through 12 experiences as well. And so when you actually throw the term out there in fifth or sixth grade, usually when you first hear the term mm-hmm. text, yeah. then you get that pushback from parents. like, no, they've been doing this for years, and so now they just want more of your content um, to continue the more in-depth discussions
0: um, about these topics. Do you think that um, even with getting those topics and discussions happening at school, do you think it probably falls more into the parents' laps with going in depth with them and probably branching into more of that un- uncomfortable space with their children um, when it mm-hmm. comes to like sex education and just basic health practices? Because I know for me growing up, I was I guess I was kind of different than a lot of people. I was more receptive to hearing it from my parents more than I was hearing at school because it just felt awkward to me. And I didn't feel like I was in enough of a comfortable space to even ask the question. But I know talking to my parents and the different times and conversations that we did have, I felt like it was easier. And so, like, to me personally, I just feel like it probably be best to get extended conversations or just those conversations more happening with parents versus only kind of happening at to the to schools. Right. Uh... That, that
1: that's interesting too. But yeah, I think that the, there's a lot of discomfort uh, for parents um, when it comes to that particular topic. But I, I say you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable when it comes to the health and safety of your children, all aspects of health, including sexual health. Um, I think I, my experience was the opposite of yours. So my parents didn't talk about it at all. But I knew like the resources that were coming into the household. Like there was like this pamphlet near the computer. Um, we had internet. <laughs> Mom didn't need internet, dad didn't need internet. Well, my, I was a single parent household, but neither of them needed internet for anything. But they knew I liked to read. And so the pamphlet plus the internet, I, I'm pretty sure they figured I'd put it together and start Googling things, which I did. And that didn't work out as, <laughs> as well as they thought it would they end up with a few viruses on their computers, <laughs> but um, but again, guiding that discussion I think would help me to figure out what to look up on the internet, even the end, even when they didn't want to have those discussions. But I found out everything I needed to know, um, just not the way I thought I would find out um, in that process. So there are other ways to do it, and, and that is an alternative uh, for sure. Uh, we just have to get parents again, just uncomfortable enough to well, comfortable enough to uncomfortably put that book down or that, or just leave the internet browser open with, you know, a specific anatomy term, for example. i um, just kind of stimulate that thought process, and if the children come back with questions, that's fine. If they don't, maybe they figured it all out um, through the all the links that are available on the internet. <laughs>
0: It's, um, it's actually kind of scary honestly because dealing with my youngest sister she's about to turn 14 but I she started coming home asking questions that what that at ten, and my mom well at that point is a single parent household but my mom wasn't even ready yet to necessarily start to have those conversations with her but it was like mm. learning it from like the internet or like just hearing it from other people at school with other kids because this generation knows they're they're accessible to a whole lot of different things and then they just talk way more about things now than when I was growing up and it was like okay, what do we need to be doing at home to try to bridge that comfortable conversation to start going and try to right. bridge her mind into this space that okay, just because you hear this at school doesn't mean it's always true or that any of these kids actually know what they're talking about but that she needs to get prepared to start to have those conversations, especially when those um, sex education topics do happen at school, right? And and so fourteen. My recommendation
1: is that that's too late, honestly. Um, just doing the research for my dissertation, which was also barbershop based um, research, but it was I think the setting was different. So it was Alabama's rural, urban um, mixing here. It's just Mississippi, just rural. Um, but even with my research preparing for my dissertation, I found an article. Um, I can't remember who published it or anything right now, but I do recall the setting was um, New York City, and they were surveying youth, just kind of asked them, like, when they first started being sexually active, and some of them were starting, these were males in particular, black males, they were starting as early as 10 to 11 years old, so if you're waiting until 14 to have that discussion, that could be potentially four years. Yeah inaccurate information they've received or other weird things that are going on um, in, that, in that, that, time span, that time span. So definitely, um, again, the more age appropriate, just gradually having those discussions over time, I think it is appropriate. By 14, they should be definitely having those in-depth anatomical questions. So this is a penis, this is a vagina, so on and so forth. Um, at that age for sure and not be oh well let's use the slang term like no let's just call it what it is um when you're talking about mitosis and meiosis in biology that should all just click by that point if yeah. uh, you don't get to that until about ninth or 10th grade anyway but by that point that should be a breeze and it wasn't all the way a breeze for me <laughs> when i got to that course in biology um at all but when i got to college i was like oh well this this is what we've been talking about, like through these discussions I've been having with peers about sex and things like that, and what the biology instructor was trying to communicate about this process. Like, this is how this is married, and I didn't realize it. So, making uh, it all connect as much as possible in the schools and outside the school. Yeah, as
0: well. um, I think it was probably easier for my uh, youngest sister to probably hear those conversations from like me. And then um, my other sister who just graduated um, when she was, I think we started having them when she got to like that 10 year old range and hearing it from school, but it was like more in depth anatomically when she got to like 12 and everything of that nature. And like now it's like a normal thing in a sense to just have that conversation and to understand what it is that she needs to know from a health standpoint and like how that whole process works or whatnot. So it's, I guess it's kind of case by case, depending on what household and like if it's single parent or if like they listen to their grandparents more or something like that and who it is that they trust to even have those comfortable conversations with but also be able to have the uncomfortable conversations with like their parents or like have it at school and be able to trust what it is that those educators or the things that they're reading in their textbook is actually real and that it's not like, just kind of playful or like just funny things that they can dismiss and things of that nature.
1: Right, and even, this is probably controversial too, even some people try to say, because of my Christian values, oh, this yeah. is why yeah. we don't have this discussion, um, but as a Christian, is it's appropriate to have those discussions as well, because I remember being three, four, five years old, I probably was probably one of the only kids that age paying attention in church, but hearing stories about like Sodom and Gomorrah, mm-hmm. I had no idea what was happening until 16 17, I was like, Wait, that's what y'all been talking about all these years? <laughs> like, wait, I wasn't ready. Um, but I think that helps them to be better Christians if you give more context, yeah. To, um, medically as well, even if it is you know for religious reasons that you're not doing something. Um, for, for for religious reasons, this should be the reason that you are doing something, um, and educating your your children about anatomically. Um, correct and appropriate jargon.
0: <laughs> um, this is a transition. Uh, this is something I've been thinking about a whole lot, actually. Um, speaking of Christianity, how how big overall do you think it's like played in your life? And being able to go to church on a consistent basis that like, you may have been able to when you were grown up compared to some other people who might have only caught church here and there, or the only reason why they went is because like, their grandmother made them go to church or something like that? Right,
1: yeah. Um, I think it's evolving overall, Christianity and what that looks like. Uh, For me, my personal experience is I was always in church, (laughs) almost always in church. My mom was in the choir, and we had a really good choir, so they were always doing multiple programs sometimes per Sunday. Um, And then Grandma, um, she was our next-door neighbor, Um, so we're on three acres of land. Grandma was on one acre, my mom was on another, and my aunt was on another, her other daughter. And um, if Mom wasn't up on time on Sunday morning, Grandma had us a grits, eggs, bacon, sausage, or whatever, and we were on our way to Sunday school, and Sunday school was her sister-in-law. She was my teacher, (laughs) my Sunday school teacher. I was very um, family-oriented, the process, reflecting on it, and it was like, this is just where your family is, and you have to be in church, because that's where you'll see your family, um, for the most part, and um, growing up in the church, I think it was I think helpful in molding who I am as a person um, learned a lot of discipline because <laughs> for whatever reason, I don't know if I was a bad kid or whatever, but my great uncle was my Sunday school teacher. I remember every other lesson being about obedience. <laughs> and I don't know what that's about. <laughs> even even when I was doing something that was probably minor, she would give this obedience talk and so I'm um, just kind of very rigid with what I do. Um, so I try to practice going to church as much as I can. Of course, COVID-19 is impacting that a lot. And it's really hard. Surprisingly enough, it's really hard to get up, to go to a virtual church versus going in person. <laughs> and I'm like, what time is it? Oh, I still have like 30 minutes to sleep. I don't have to get up and get ready and put on a suit. And I was like, nobody uh-huh. can see me. I Can sleep in a little bit longer. Next thing I know, I've overslept for a virtual <laughs> church. <laughs> I'm more late for church now than I was when we had it in person. Um, but for me, I think as a Christian, I think the important part to communicate to everybody is that I don't think anything that I've done uh, would have happened without God in my life. Like, mm-hmm. nothing that I've personally done, um, has been done without him and so he's ordered my steps he's put the words in my mouth he's put the he's given me a sound mind to get the work done like none of that is possible uh, without him so just keep him at the head of your if that's what you believe in of course Um, um, if you believe in God keep him at the center of your life of course we have um, now and this is something I have to practice as a professional personally and Christian but professionally um, we have to acknowledge that everyone has a different belief system as well, but whatever you believe in, um, for sure, um, if it's a positive, something that's going to motivate you just um, continue what you need to do to get to that next level, keep that at the center of your life and, and keep moving forward. And so for me, that's God. And again, without God, none of this, all this fun stuff I have behind me is possible. All these papers on my desk, that, that wouldn't be possible without him for sure. Uh, no yeah. uh, uh, for sure in the, in the church like just getting involved too um that, that's a major component of i think people coming back to the church so for me i because my mom was in the choir she forced me to be in the youth choir for example um and so from i don't i don't think i could walk and i think i was in the choir <laughs> But up until about 12, um, I was in the choir, and then my grandmother gave me this ultimatum because, you know, when you're about 11 to 12, you start going through that phase where you don't really want to do anything. it's like I'm proud of this, and I just want to be my own person and all this stuff, and my grandmother was like, so you either going to be on the usher board or you're going to be in the choir. And so I did the usher board, I think, two Sundays, <laughs> then I was back in the choir, but my my outlet or my excuse for missing choir rehearsal began to be banned so i was involved in band and starting in sixth grade and all the way through my senior year of high school and so band practice would conflict a lot of time. the end time would conflict with the start time of choir rehearsal and our our um, choir directors they were always strict about if you're not a rehearsal you can't sing <laughs> it was very rigid you can't just pop up in the, up in here sunday and think you're gonna sing it's not gonna happen and even to uh, one of our choir instructors, choir directors, he's actually um, a pastor now. I can't remember where he's located. I think once he's in Georgia now. Um, but he was very rigid as well, about, even more rigid than the other past choir directors, because he would require us to actually do our own Bible study. And so he had these challenges that we it was homework that was involved and you had to finish all this homework and it was more intense for the adults than it was the children <laughs> um, but we have to do homework before we could even um, come back into the car stand so and they would be relevant to the song that we were learning like where did you find this like there here's a line like where did that come from what what birds what happened things like that um and then the I think the adults, it was way more complicated. Like, they'd be in there about to, out in the parking lot, gathered around, trying to compare answers, um, hoping they got it right so they could sing that night, so they could sing on Sunday, or rehearse that night so they could sing on on Sunday. Um, Very intense process. Um, And like I said, now, and I'm not in the choir now, but I think, yes, when I was doing my master's degree, I was close enough to home. So where I could commute back and forth to church and, and do the choir thing. So from 2011 to about 2013 ish. No, that was my master's. Degree. That was my academic advising experience. Um, but at that that time span, I was in the choir as well, learning how to sing all over again. Because by that point, I was like, wait, what? How does this work? How does this voice work? Because I thought I used to sing tenor when I was a child, but I don't know how to catch the tenor part anymore. <laughs> and I think it was because mainly that my my mom was in the alto section, so I would I, I'm always naturally listening for the alto part um, regardless because that's what I heard before I ever sang was the alto part, and so that's I think I just regressed back to that. Like, oh, how do I do this again? But being involved there, and then in my doctoral program, I wasn't involved in the church. I didn't even join a church official, but there was a church I was consistently going to um, in Tuscaloosa, and of course with the faith-based program that we had. I was always in somebody's church anyway um, because we had to make sure that when we delivered those lessons, that it wasn't just health information. We had to make sure that it was tied to scripturally, um, tied to the content. So if we were talking about diabetes, I had to do some research on, and I was like, okay, let me find a a scripture or two about how this is connected. And the pastor, fortunately enough, would do the the actual um, Bible study, brief mini Bible study lesson before we would get into the, the health content. Um, but he would really make that connection for the audience. And now more of the same here in Starkville. So I'm trying to do more of that, get back into the health, uh, well, faith-based health information. So getting, this is how I keep myself in church now, <laughs> like doing th- that work in the church. Um, so we started off, I think it was February at my home church and I was supposed to be experimenting with this, um, trying to duplicate what I did in, so- um, in Tuscaloosa. Uh, with that program, so we did a nutrition workshop, shop. and this pastor, my pastor, he only wants to do it every other month, so the next month would have been April, but everything was shut down in April, so we haven't been able to continue with that um, yet, but it, it's still something that's on our radar, and even now, looking at grants, I'm trying to figure out how to do that virtually, not necessarily for my church, but for other churches as well, um, where we can have maybe Zoom health Bible studies or something like that. Um, moving forward, but that I think that keeps me grounded as well is making sure my research at least part some of my research is tied
0: to the church as well. Uh, for me personally, I uh, kind of had a different path for getting into the choir at church or whatnot. Um, growing up, I was basically forced into the youth choir as well, but afterwards, when I got to like that 11 12 year old range, I had a time period where I just stopped being in the youth choir or whatnot and I actually got into choir and band at school, but I was forced into the usher board. So <laughs> I was doing that until basically I left for like college or whatnot. But at the same time, I eventually found my way back into like the youth choir. I mean, the choir, um, one of the adult choirs at church and everything, because mm-hmm. the youngest one is like 15 to like 40 years, that age range mm-hmm. or whatnot. So I was definitely doing a lot of different things at church. And then me being a Boy Scout, I was always in church doing something every Sunday or every Saturday. And then my sisters being in Girl Scouts as well. So it's kind of like I've grown up in the church setting or whatnot. And as I got to, I was to maybe 14, that's when I actually started to pay attention more in church yeah. and everything and try to understand the actual messages that were being taught um, during Sunday or even the few times that I actually went to Bible study then but I definitely don't go now um, <laughs> But uh, it was like those are my key moments of starting to understand okay Like what is, exactly is Christianity like what are these different denominations and everything and What is actually religion as a whole and like why do people have like different faith bases and things of that nature? And at this point in my life it's like kind of being in and out of church and now doing church virtually, it's Mm -hmm. really made me think about how me being out of church doesn't really take away my opportunity and my position in life to actually have a relationship with God. And it's Mm -hmm. making me start to think a whole lot about Christianity and like the purposes behind it or whatnot and start to really think, well, do I actually need to be going to church or like, this church actually give me that position to have a relationship with God. And so I'm starting mm-hmm. to kind of think about, well, as long as I have a relationship with God and I learned through those life experiences and I have more faith and different things, then I feel like I might not need the church necessarily or like going mm-hmm. to the church all the time will be actually beneficial for me because I'm actually getting my relationship with God on kind of on my own terms. Right right in, in college
1: my undergrad years were probably the worst in terms of going to church I, i'm just a naturally shy person um so for me just breaking out of that shell and going places this is just a new thing and i've always been that way with church it's like oh i'm gonna be put on the spot when i show up you know they ask like for the visitors to stand and say something and i just don't want to deal with that and so for um, undergrad, if I wasn't going home to my home church, I wasn't going to church at, at all. So, um, for me, it was about, you know, just staying, you know, in the Bible or maybe watching some choir videos or something like that, like something, um, to feel like I was still a part of the church. Um, and still had that relationship with God. You, I talk to God every day, like about random things, <laughs> uh, but, but having that relationship, um with that with that higher power is very important. And something I left out too, but to, to some extent I think Christianity sometimes can influence mental health. That might be controversial. But yeah, I, can. Because I paid I can. so much attention Yeah, because I paid so much attention early on. Mm-hmm. I mean, my teachers thought I was going crazy. So I think it was second grade for sure. So I think I had just been baptized the summer before and it's like confess your sins and all those things like that's what stuck with me was confess your sins or you know those bad thoughts that you're having and so any bad thought that came to mind I would just say it it's like oh I feel really and I would you know give a preface it with I feel really bad because I had this really bad thought about this and so the teacher was thinking thinking, you know, something bad was going on at home. She was recommending counseling and all this. She was like, no, I was really just paying attention in church, which you should be doing also, ma'am. But <laughs> but now you're making this something much bigger than it is. So sometimes it can be misinterpreted as a mental health issue. In other cases, it can lead to um, mental health issues, those, tra- those traumatizing events. Because I think even with the whole obedience spiel that my great aunt uh, with Yale, for um, for example, I think that influenced, you know, what I felt like I could and could not say to people. Definitely affected me. Yeah. Complying did, didn't necessarily want to comply in certain situations. Yeah. And so that does make you feel a certain type of way. It's like, do I really have power or autonomy um, over, you know, my mind or my words, or my actions at all? Is this all, like, to what extent do we... <laughs> Cut this obedience thing off and move forward. Don't talk back to your parents. Well, why not? That didn't make sense.
0: <laughs> and nobody can give me a real That's reason a why. Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but
1: we'll, we'll leave that alone, I think, because I don't want to get in
0: trouble. <laughs> um, so, um, noticing the shirt that you're wearing, on um, Black Educator, uh, I really didn't read the if it's more on there or what not, but I uh, uh, Where yeah, it, more, uh, uh, what does it say? A popular demand. Okay, okay. <laughs> black educator by popular demand. Um, yeah. what do you think the importance is, especially with the climate now, with um social injustices and um the Black Lives Matter movement and everything else that's going on in the world, with being able to see like black educators on um, not just in like university level and things of that nature, but like at the elementary stages and like middle schools and like secondary education, like what do you think the importance of that is for um, minority students as a whole?
1: Mm -hmm. I I think minority students um, deserve to see people who look like the, uh, and it's the same thing we're talking about with medicine. That's a lot of um, the research that was going on when I was doing those rural programs, like how do we get more representation? into medicine the same thing can be applied to education is how do we get more representation how do we give those positive enough experiences to where these individuals want to go into education moving forward how do we create those pipelines into education but some people just see education as oh well i couldn't find anything else to do or you couldn't find anything else to do so you became an educator and it's actually a running joke um even up in higher education the way you couldn't do anything else so you're a professor <laughs> um, it, it's kind of cruel but um, maybe this is really what we want to do we want yeah. to share our to share our lives share what we know and continue that learning process because a lot of people don't realize that when we're education we're not just educating others but others are educating us as well the students are educating us about a lot because it's a, it's a give and take constantly. And we look at things from the, through a different lens every time we introduce the same content. Uh, well, at least you should be anyway. Um, but you look at it differently every time you, you talk about that particular topic. Um, but how do we get those individuals, really us, involved? For me, my experience, because I think I saw a meme or a joke, or maybe it was just a question on Facebook recently. Uh, when was the first time you had a black, I think it was a black male as a teacher. And I I reflect, I was like, my first time was fifth grade. Um, Mr. Charlie Howard, and he was my math, sciences, and history teacher, I think. Because we only had two. That's how small my school was. There were two teachers per grade. And so he would do do that component of the lesson. So everyone had to see him. Uh, But he was from the community. Um, Everyone knew him. They knew where he lived, all that fun stuff, everything about his family history. Um, but he was probably outside of band and PE, like he was probably the only black male teacher that I had, uh, reflecting. No, I take that back. I did have Mr. Davis as a math teacher, um, as well, but mainly you'll see us black males in particular in those, those areas. You'll see see us in athletics or music. Um, you rarely see us in mathematics, science, education, well, not education, but history, things like that within the education realm. And so how do we inspire these individuals to give back to the community in that way? I think um, for us, what really motivates us, unfortunately, is money. Yeah. Um, a lot of times when we're choosing our career path, and sometimes that doesn't necessarily lead to life satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Sometimes your life satisfaction is within education or some other rent, some lower pay <laughs> um, feeling, unfortunately. Um, but that's usually why we don't see a lot of I say people of color, not just males or females, but all people of color in these fields, because we're we're encouraged to go into STEM. Like there's initiatives to go into STEM. It's like once you go into STEM, yeah, it's like, okay, right. all <laughs> right. Now that I'm here, do I want to just do um, secondary education as my other as my minor or my um, other major and teach ninth through twelfth graders, or do I want to? go work for Glatso, Smith, Klein or NASA or something like that and really be rolling in the dough. And usually the answer is, let's go with the bigger <laughs> the, the bigger option, the big company, the organization who's going to um, help me live that lifestyle that has been promised to us because um, we live in the land of opportunity and that's one of the opportunities I want us to make money. And this is how I can do it. Um, but figuring out how to really incentivize those individuals to come into education at all levels is, is very important. Because um, again, if you don't see those individuals along the way, mm-hmm. you may be inspired to do the the NASAs and things like that when you get, after you got gotten to college or once you've into to um, that graduate program, you may do something else and that's not what we want you to be either.
0: I hope that made sense. <laughs> <laughs> it made sense. Well, at least for me it did. Um, yeah. i actually trying to think back to the first time I had a black male educator. Um, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, right. the, first, the first time I had a male teacher period, it was probably, Middle school, it was eighth grade. That was the first time I had a male educator period, but I actually don't think I've had like a black educator until sometime in high school, late high school or whatnot. But just seeing more black people or more minority teachers in the room would definitely help because I know for me, especially thinking about like higher paying jobs and things of that nature, I always dismissed education because I was like, teachers don't make that much. I'm not gonna find myself in the classroom, not making anything, not living much of a life at all, and I don't want to be like necessarily teaching kids and stuff like that. I just, I just knew because of the money factor that I didn't think it was glamorous and things of that nature. But it's definitely something that it kind of resurfaced in a lot of people's minds, especially now, like trying to push for that more and more to not just try to help kids know that being a teacher isn't, um, is cool as well, but just for helping kids as a whole and being able to show them that they can actually go through like the school system and actually graduate and actually do something with their lives. Right. And you
1: have to remember too, every, every profession is dependent on education. Yeah. You can't have engineers. You can't have anything without educators first. So, um, I advocate for paying them more. I looked at some of the salaries recently um, for some of the K-12 educators and said, there is no way this is all they're getting. For all this work that they do, um, this is this is all they're getting paid. You know, there needs to be reallocation of the budgets to emphasize education for sure and really get more people into the profession for sure. I think I you're starting thinking- to see out there, even some educators, because of the... Policy level things that we're doing. Some educators are opting to not return to the classroom because of the risk they're involved and other factors. And so it's like, well, it's really not worth it. I can do this at home and get paid a lot more, or whatever the other alternative, or just retire. Um, So we're going to, I think, we're going to see a demand for more educators um, moving forward, especially in this virtual space, because a lot of people are realizing. I've been doing online teaching since I've been here at Mississippi State University because we have a distance and on-campus option for our programs. Yep. I'm always doing at least one uh, distance course, and so I think people, a lot of people right now, are learning how much work goes into distance courses because I, I will get the feedback from others all the time prior to COVID nineteen. Like, oh, you're teaching online classes, you're good. And I'm like, no. I'm not. Those are the hardest classes to teach because you have to be so much more organized, so much structured, and really make sure that they're getting exactly, if not more, in that online setting um, um, in comparison to those individuals on, on campus. So it's a lot of work, a lot of feedback, a lot of emails, a lot of Zoom and WebEx and everything, phone calls about the content. You're just making sure everyone's mastering the content. In the same fashion that they would if they were on on campus.
0: I think, um, like you said, it's going to be more of a demand to have more educators just in general. And something that I've been thinking a lot, whole lot about is not just paying the teachers higher wages, but actually reinvesting back into the schools to have better, um, like after school programs or just better um, career invested programs to engage kids more and help them realize that. Education is the main reason why we have a lot of different things and if you're not educated, at least through like the K through twelve system, then it's gonna be kinda of hard to move forward in life and to actually right. move into a career because you're not having those people bridge the gap for you and give you those basic pillars that you need for life, which comes from teachers and educators as you grow up. Right. And and for those individuals listening, um who are not sure
1: what to do, but get, get involved in any, any way you can within the education system. Um, that was my, I think that was the key takeaway I gave to my hometown, to the class of 2019, I think it was, 18, one of those years, I gave a baccalaureate speech, but that was the, the main um, message I was trying to deliver, not only to the students, but to the, the parents, the alumni, the administrators, is, is get involved and for the administrators, be accessible. Because um, there are a lot of resources that um, that community members have to offer the schools, for example. Um, a lot of people criticize the school systems, for example, for saying that, oh, they're not allocating the resources correctly. They're half teaching. Hold those people accountable. Yeah. Um, you know, do observations and say, hey, well, I saw you covered this content, but you left out this information. I'm an engineer. <laughs> this is <just> what, <laughs> yeah. what I've um, if you want me to come in and do some guest lectures, I can do that to enhance what you're already um, doing in the classroom. Find a way to enhance. Don't don't always tear it down. But find a way to enhance. Oh, I'm gonna pull my child out of this school and put him to this private school, this public school and put him to this private school. Well, you're paying for the public school out of your tax your tax dollars are going to the public school. Hold those individuals accountable because you don't want to pay twice for the oh. same <laughs> <laughs> uh, but make sure that you hold those administrators, those teachers accountable. And again, have those, those in-depth discussions with the individuals. Don't be confrontational, just kind of say, hey, what can I do? Um, this is the time that I have, or this is the money that I have. These are the additional resources that I have. This is what's available that I can offer. How can I insert this back into um, this school? And make it a pleasant experience for those those individuals who are there who are going to be the next set of leaders and professionals in the community
0: i think that's what gets a lot um, lost in a lot of people's minds the fact that their tax dollars are already going to like the public education system for a whole but just being able to reinvest just as a parent and understanding is your kid getting it enough from the school system and what is it that you can do to help better that um right. situation going on even even at the public school level but just overall as education as a whole within your community. Right. Uh, so in closing um I put the thing on my phone. Um I wanted to start like a podcast tradition or not for like my guests that I have on here and things of nature. And I have uh Two questions, but for you personally, I'm going to ask one because i already asked the other one. But um, so, uh, if you could give uh, your younger self some advice, um, what would it be?
1: Hmm. That's that's a good question. (laughs) Never thought I could ask that question, but let me think about (laughs) it. um probably just take more risks i think that's what i tell myself um i think there's some some opportunity i think i'm i'm very blessed with where i am right now but i did i think i did have some opportunities to slip by me um that i like to get a, a redo on like for example student loans um uh, scholars additional scholarship money um not putting applications to the side because that could have been money in my pocket but um, take those extra risks, like take take that chance. Stay up a little bit later. Do something. Um, do those things that you you're dreaming about, and really pursue those. That that girl, ask her out. Like she'll either she'll say yes or she'll say no, and <laughs> move from there. Move on from there. But just take more chances. Um, don't be afraid to to ask for help. I think early on, that, that was my major issue. It's like, I'm going to ask you one time, but I have to ask twice. Yeah. And, you know, then I really need it, basically, if I ask you twice. <laughs> but um, you're going to say yes, or you're going to say no. But but definitely take those risks, for sure, is what I'd say to younger Antonio. Um, right. Now. Um, go to parties. Just have fun. Just enjoy life would be the additional... Um, tidbit of information that I have because I think I got so focused on being this cookie cutter um, individual like oh he's in church, he's in band, he has really good grades um, that I really didn't just take as much time to just go out and make mistakes and so that's why I say take more risk so just go ahead and have fun, just do do your own thing, You'll, you'll survive <laughs> 2020 looks good um, professionally, if good. Uh, the rest of 2020 is questionable.
0: <laughs> that, but
1: that's what I tell my younger self.
0: Oh, man, um, well, thank you for your time. And, um, thank you for your insight as well. Um, like I introduced you earlier, um, you're like my mentor now, but I know you don't even like me really saying that. Cause technically it's like, we both learned a lot from each other. And things that are needed. Yeah. But, um, really. <laughs> but it's definitely good being able to have people um, like you and your position and where you are in life to be able to just talk to, just about life or anything, not necessarily always about school or things of that nature, but just about everyday life stuff. And so I just really encourage more um, young people, especially in that college range, to maybe not just find a professor per se, but find somebody who you like trust or who you feel like you can actually open up to. And, be able to get in those comfortable um, spaces with and be able just to talk about everyday life because we all need um somebody to talk to and somebody to express our feelings and what it is that we're going to. And it's easier if we have somebody who's already been through it and things of that nature. Yeah. I agree for sure. But uh, like I said, thank you for your time and thank you for being my first guest on my podcast. And probably will try to work in as a guest again down the road and um, probably in a better setting once COVID-19 has gone and um, passed us and things of that nature. Yes. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. Um, the bar is set
1: really high for <laughs> the next few guests. <laughs> um, I kid, I kid. Um, but we'll, we'll have an, an amazing experience with this podcast. I think everybody has something to gain from this podcast for sure. Um, I've been learning a lot. I'll listen to to you while I'm in the gym, um, sweating. I'm like, uh, I don't want to get all the sweat on my earphone, but I need to listen <laughs> to this podcast. <laughs> uh, but I've, I've been learning a lot from you. So, like like you said, um, on paper I'm your mentor, but you're my mentor as well. So um, I learn a lot from you, and I actually have the opportunity to reach back and just pause sometimes, it's like, oh, like I'm so far removed from. What I was doing when I was twenty twenty one that I forget what current twenty twenty one year olds are doing now, and I need to acknowledge that because I am in that space where I am interacting with with younger um individuals, y'all get younger, younger every year. I'm not gonna say I get older y'all <laughs> get younger, every year. <laughs> and so having that that opportunity to really connect um and bring people up. Um, with me as well, because again, we have to reach back and, and help others to get to where they need to be as well. And that's why I love about mentorship. It's just that opportunity to share um, my personal experiences, what worked well, well, what didn't work well, what I think would, could work well with our English Um and help you just make the, the best decisions possible. So that you're not, I wouldn't say suffer, but you're not suffering in the same way um, that I was or or did. Um, I'm always, I've always been very observant, so I'm, I'm always about the experiential learning, um, but not necessarily always my experiences, but others' experiences. Like, what can I learn from that situation so that I don't get into that moving forward and make the best decision? Make the best decision if I get in that predicament. And so, again, I thank you for the opportunity. I look forward to. <laughs> i um, hearing more podcasts for sure, and if anybody wants to reach out to me, um, I'm not sure. James will provide my information,
0: maybe, or she'll just provide it. <laughs> Um, you probably just get it. I'll provide it, yeah. I'll provide yes, it, yes. not, yeah. James
1: will yeah. information, and you can reach out to me if you have additional questions, or you want to clarify anything, or you just want to talk, because clearly I'm a talker sometimes. <laughs> uh, we can do that as well. but. Thank you, thank you, and best of luck in your future endeavors, James.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, And this has been the James Chapman Podcast. Peace.